Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I titled this message, The Process is Greater Than the Product. The Process is Greater Than the Product. So if you remember, we looked at the ruins last time that surround our lives. In chapter 1, Nehemiah inquired because he had this concern for the people and the place, Jerusalem and the Jews, and he asked, how are they doing? And he hears about the devastation and the ruin surrounding their lives. But then he looked to God, right? And we actually looked at all these problems last week, drama, gossip, divorce, social media, fear, suicide, lust, doubts, uh, identity, trust, all these things are problems surrounding our lives. And we are to look to God with these problems. But what's the next step after that? What should we do after we've identified and we really see the problem and we've brought it to the Lord? What should we do next? Well, you want to go ahead? Go ahead. No? All right. I think we live in a world nowadays that has a mass production. People want quantity over quality. That's why people go to buffets. And I'm sorry, I hate buffets. If you like buffets, that's cool. But when you go to buffets, you increase in quality or in quantity, but the quality is not the same, right? And that's our world today. And people mass produce things. However, the Lord is more concerned about the quality than the quantity. He's concerned about the quality of your walking relationship with God. And that's why each and every step is important in the process. This is something that Howard Hendricks said that has stuck with me. And he says, the process determines the product. I'll repeat that. The process determines the product. What that means is what you put into it and how it is planned out determines where you're going to go with that. And so the book of Nehemiah is broken down into two portions. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 are about the rebuilding of the wall, and chapters 7 through 13 is the revival of the people. Let's look at verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. In verse 1, it says, it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Here's the Jewish calendar so you get an idea. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says in the month of Kiflev, which we see here on the calendar, which is between November and December in the 20th year of this king. Artie. We'll call him Artie for short. Now it's a completely different month. In chapter 2, verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, it literally says, in the month of Nisan, which is the first month of the Jewish calendar around March or April. So between chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, four months have passed. Four months. Now, we don't see that in Scripture, but he's making a time date for us to understand what's going on in the process that he went through. What do you think Nehemiah did for those four months? Anybody? 
in those four months, what do you think he did? Did he simply do nothing? He has this concern for the people. He sees the problem. He prays to God. What does he do now? Nehemiah actually was busy praying, waiting on the Lord, and planning. And those are three things I want to look at, is praying, waiting, or patience, and planning. The first thing is praying. Nehemiah didn't just pray once, and he was like, all right, I'm done, and he walks away. He prayed day and night, it says, for four months. Not just one week, not just one month, four long months. How many of you have ever prayed persistently for something? Anybody like, for that long? That's a long time to pray for something. He prayed for four months. And this concern for the people and the place turned into a burden, actually. It grew from this caring heart to literally it became heavy upon his heart, heavy upon his mind, heavy upon his shoulders because he couldn't get it out of his mind. Have you been there before? Where there's something that's on your mind, something that's heavy upon your heart, and you just can't get it out of your mind. You think about it day and night. You think about it every week, and it's constant. This was with Nehemiah. Alan Redpath said, a hundred people with a burden is better than a thousand people without. He says, I'd rather have people with a burden and a hunger and a desire. Maybe a burden for one of these topics. Maybe a burden for a specific area. God had been putting this burden on Nehemiah's heart. See, prayer is part of the process. Because through prayer, we are accomplishing God's will and not our will. It's through prayer that God changes us. And during that four months, as he's praying, God is molding Nehemiah and changing him. If you go to chapter 1, verse 11, it says at the very end, he says, for I was a cu- the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah, his job was to taste the food before it was given to the king. So he would die instead of the king would die. And this was one of the most trusted positions and actually had more authority than his family as the king cupbearer. God was in the business of molding the cupbearer into something different. And I love this because you know what? Look at the people that God uses in scripture. He used fishermen. He took fishermen and formed them into preachers, into evangelists. He took shepherds and made one a king. Idol makers, Abraham, called them out from his homeland and started a nation with him. He takes the youngest. He even takes prostitutes and uses them and forms them into something different. So I, can I encourage you? Don't look at what maybe disqualifies you. You might think, well, I'm like this. I can't be used for that. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and God was changing his job. And his job would change three times throughout the book. Nehemiah was busy waiting for four months as well. Now, when we think of waiting, this does not mean he's doing nothing and just kind of playing with his thumbs and 
doing nothing at all. Waiting is actually often hard work, especially when there's no end in sight. Have you been there before? Where you're just waiting and you're waiting and there's nothing around the corner? See, patience is part of the process as well. Nehemiah wasn't impulsive or reactive. He did not rush ahead of the Lord. He waited patiently for the Lord in the process. Now, none of us like waiting, right? We hate waiting. We are a culture that does not like to wait for anything. So to wait takes tremendous amount of endurance because waiting, in the waiting, that's when doubt sometimes tends to sink in. That's where discouragement comes and sinks in. Because if we're actually dealing with any of these problems or some that aren't on the screen, and we're waiting and God hasn't delivered us from these things, we can get discouraged. If God hasn't acted instantly, James chapter one, verses two through four, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience or endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking nothing. God wants to produce within you something. And sometimes waiting will do that. Waiting is part of the process. None of us like it, but all of us have to do it. And it actually is developing character within us. It's developing faith within us, and God is refining us. Sometimes God waits to see if we're still going to trust Him in the process. And can I encourage you? Christianity is a process. You don't instantly get saved, and then all of a sudden, all your problems are solved. It's a process of becoming more and more and more and more like Christ. Nehemiah, even though he was waiting, he, he didn't get discouraged. He was determined, and he knew that God had put this burden upon his heart and would answer his prayer. Now it says King Artaxerxes, or we'll call him King Artie for short. This guy was not just another average king in that known world. He was the king because the Persian army was the ruling empire at that time of the known world. So this is the most influential, most powerful man on the planet at this moment. And he's the king's cupbearer. So picture that for a moment. The most powerful person that can kill you with one command. He waits on him. And all of a sudden, he has some wine. He sips the wine so it's make sure it's not poisonous. And he gives it to the king. And he says, I've never been sad in his presence before. In the last four months, Nehemiah didn't show any grief or sadness until this moment here. And there are times where we are good at hiding, where we're good at putting on a face. But then all of a sudden, that mask starts to fall apart. And our heart genuinely bleeds through. It comes through our action, our face, our words, and people will notice it around you. Look at verse 2. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face, verse 2, he says, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of hearts 
so I became dreadfully afraid. The burden became visible through his actions. It was weighing on his heart and his mind so much that he couldn't get it off of his chest. I believe the Lord is faithful and good and gracious to do that with his people. He will put his finger on something in your heart and in your mind until you deal with it. It's interesting. Um, I just met with an old student of mine last night. And I hadn't seen this guy in a long time. And he texted me last Friday. He goes, Josh, I don't know if you've heard, but I fully surrendered my life to Christ right now. And he goes, can we meet up and talk? And I was like, absolutely. And we got um, Red Robin last night. And the Lord was putting it on his heart to come talk to me. And he kept kind of putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And then finally, he's like, you know what? I got to talk to Josh. The Lord is faithful to do that. And so now here, Nehemiah, his face reveals the burden on his heart. He is sad in the king's presence. And guess what? In that culture, in that time, if you were sad in the king's presence, that means death. Because the king didn't like anybody sat in his presence. So you had to be happy in his presence all the time. So the fact that, A uh, not Abraham, uh, Nehemiah was sat in his presence was possibly a death sentence on him. And not only that, he knew it was time to say something. It was time for him to share the burden that was on his heart. Look at verse 3. In verse 3 he says, and he said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lie waste and its gates are burned with fire? Dude, Nehemiah is so wise here. You know why? He first responds with praising the king, which basically shows his loyalty. And then he answers the king's question with a question. Look at the question in the mark at the very end of verse 3. He says, why shouldn't I be sad? Nehemiah didn't actually mention Jerusalem or Judea yet. He was wise in his words and the choice of his words that he used. In verse 4, the king responds. He says, then the king said to me, what do you request? So I pray to God, the God of heaven. Instantly, he's, the king says, what do you want? And he throws up a quick prayer, quick and quietly in his head. And then he proceeds to talk. I love this because this actually shows us that we don't need a long, drawn-out prayer. We can say, Lord, help, and then move forward. It doesn't have to be complicated. And so he prays in verse 5. It says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judea, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Now, I have a question. Do you think Nehemiah just prayed and God gave him the answers in that moment for the king? You're shaking your head no. Why? Not going to answer? <laughs> I think you're correct. Nehemiah did not just pray and all of a sudden God just dropped the answers in his head. That's not how God works. 
yet that's how we want him to work at times. Warren Wiersbe said this, prayer and concern are not substitutes for clear thinking and adequate organization. In other words, we want as little effort and energy as possible, but we want the most amazing results. We pray, but we don't plan. We want God to do all the work for us, and we don't want to put any work involved at times. But Nehemiah, for four months, has not only been waiting, he has not only been praying, he has also been planning. He's been planning for the last four months. The speaker that we're going to have out for the parenting conference, he said this, and this stuck in my mind. He said, God won't do by miracle what he has called us to do by obedience. In other words, if we're praying for a miracle and God says, hey, I've commanded you to walk in this way, he's not going to do it for us. He wants us to walk and take those steps of faith, trusting him, and we are going to see his will, his grace unfold before our eyes. And I want to focus on the planning process here because planning is part of the process. Not only is praying, waiting, but planning is part of the process. So if you're taking notes, here's something to write down. First thing, part of the process, you need to consider where you're at. We did that last week. We observed the ruins. Where are you at? Where are things? What's the reality of them? And then where do you want to be? What's the goal? What's the end result? Okay, so you have the starting point and you have the ending point. But now, how do we get from there, point A to point B? What's the process? What's the many little steps that go from one thing to the next thing? Because the process determines the product. Another way you can see this is step one, look at the ruins. Then you have the end goal is the wall would be rebuilt. But what about all the little steps in between here? That's what the book of Nehemiah is about. It's about all these little steps involved I want us to take a moment, look at this, look at the board. Pick one of these things. Would someone pick one of these? Just randomly choose one, raise your hand. Identity. Identity. Okay, if identity is the problem we want to solve, we gotta apply this method to identity. We gotta first define it because a lot of people have different definitions of what that is and what that entails. We gotta talk about where people are at in their identity. And where do we want to be? Or we should ask, where does God want us to be in that process? And then what are the little, the many steps to get to that point? Does that make sense? I want to encourage you, take this and ask God to unfold the process, to show you one step at a time. Here's something for you. The book of Joshua is all about them going and conquering the land. The end goal was to conquer the land that they could live there, and that would be their nation. But you know what God did? He showed Joshua one step at a time. 
and he didn't show him anything past that. He says, do this. Then Joshua was obedient, and then he showed him the next step. And then Joshua was obedient, and he showed him the next step. The very first couple of steps, he says, I don't want you to be afraid. And as they go to cross over the Jordan, they actually walked in with the, the priests walked first. And as soon as they stepped foot into the Jordan River, it dried up completely. Which actually, in other words, God actually stopped the river miles away and created like this dam and made the water flow stop. As soon as they would step in the river, the Jordan River, it stopped completely and became dry. And all the people walked through. And as soon as the priest stepped out of the Jordan River, the water continued to rush through. After they were done with that, God showed them another step. And then once they conquered Jericho, he showed them another step. And there was a process involved. And it's one step at a time. Don't focus on the far future and what you're going to do for a living. What does God want you to do right now in junior high? What does God want you to do tomorrow as you go home? Maybe some of you are going to go home and you're going to fight with your parents. What does God want you to do with that in that moment? Howard Hendricks, he says, I believe where prayer and planning focus, power follows. He goes on to say, but we may not take our faith very seriously, but God does. He's not playing church. I love this guy because he gives me thought-provoking questions. He's passed away, and my parents actually got me uh, to learn him and kind of get involved in his resources. But he's a very practical thinker. Where there's prayer and there's planning. How much do you plan out in your Christian life? Are you planning the next devotion that you would have with the Lord? Are you saying, tomorrow morning, I'm going to spend time with Jesus? Or tomorrow evening? Or are you just saying, whenever I feel like it? If you say, whenever I feel like it, you're never going to. If it's really important, you're going to put it down in your calendar. And you're not going to miss that date, right? If it's somebody's birthday, if you're going to be somewhere. Put in your calendar and plan to meet with the Lord and say, you know what? I'm going to read my Bible this day at this time and make that appointment with Jesus. Where prayer and planning focus, power follows. A.W. Tozer said, battles are lost before they are fought. Do you know why that is? Do you know why people lose before they even get into the ring? It's because they fail to plan. The battle is lost for a lack of preparation, a lack of planning, a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding. Imagine, the battle doesn't take place when you get into the ring. Boxing matches... UFC fighters, they train for months on end. They have a strict diet. They exercise daily. They get into the ring. They joust. They go back and forth. They're intentional and specific in their pre preparation for the battle at hand because they know the battle is won before it is fought. Now, I think... Sometimes we think that God has a, like a lack of power, a lack of knowledge. Do we trust in God's ability that he has the steps planned out? 
that he wants to provide us that knowledge and that insight. See, how many of you guys are planners? Does anybody plan things? I have to plan things. So for many of us that are planners and you got to put things in your phone, write things down, and how many of you guys hate being late? Oh, I hated being late. My family was always late places. Love my parents. But we would be late constantly. I like planning. I like preparing for things. And the same thing is in the Christian life. But can I challenge you, planners? Don't put your trust and your faith in your planning. Because then you're not putting it in God. If you're putting your trust and your faith in what you've planned out, then your trust is in something that is not worthy of your trust. Proverbs 21 verse 31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of the battle, but deliverance and victory are of the Lord. In other words, don't put your faith and your trust in your preparation, in the planning. Put it in God. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan. We should leave room in our plans for the Lord. You guys might not know this, but when we actually plan camp, there are many details involved. Financially, we got the bus, we got shirts, we need people's sizes, we need their names. There's all these details that go into that. And you guys get to have an amazing camp experience because of the prayer and the planning that goes involved with it. Those two things are key. Sometimes I have to kind of remind myself because I'm somebody that will rely on my preparation, even in my notes, that sometimes I can plan out my notes and have it word for word sometimes where God's not even given space in my notes for him to actually interject himself. And so are you actually planning out areas where God can say, where you're saying, Lord, what do you want to do in this situation? How do you want to come in and be involved? Howard Hendricks says, we don't plan to fail, but we often fail to plan. Tomorrow morning, I'm not going to wake up in the morning and be like, Oh, all right, how can I fail today? How can I give in to sin? How can I go get in a car accident? That's dumb, right? None of us plan to fail. But we fail to plan. And by failing to plan, we are actually bound to fail. That's why we need to really think through things. The Bible says to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. That means your intellect. Are you loving God with your intellect? If, for, if somebody were to ask you, why are you a Christian? Could you answer that? What are the reasons you believe in Jesus? If you say, oh, I had a feeling you know Mormons respond the same way? Our faith is not based off of feeling. It's based off of fact. Now, I'm not saying God can't give you an amazing experience. He can, and he promises that. He wants us to experience his love. But Christianity is not supposed to be based off an experience. It is an experience. But there's truth in historical evidence. Are we loving God with our minds? 
Are you planning out things with the Lord? What's burdening your heart? Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Plan out the way and then allow the Lord to direct you and shift your attention in different ways. Allow Him. And don't get mad. I don't know about you, but sometimes when we plan things and it doesn't go according to plan, we get frustrated and we get angry. But we need to let God have His way with our plans. And if He says, I don't want this, and He wants to take it out, then we got to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let God be sovereign over our lives and have control. Notice in verse 6, Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him. Now I'm kind of wondering, why does he interject that truth? He says, oh yeah, the queen was sitting beside the king. It's very possible that the queen maybe saw Nehemiah's face and whispered into her husband's ear, and he's sad, and she noticed it first. Or it's very possible he's indicating it's a private setting because when the queen was around, not many other people were. And so it's just Nehemiah, the king, and the queen. Continuing in verse 6, the king says, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? That actually proves that the king cared about Nehemiah. It's possible that Nehemiah was his favorite cupbearer. He goes, dude, you're my best cupbearer. I don't want you to go. How long is this journey going to be? But notice at the end of verse 6, he says, So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. The king said, you know what? I'll let you go. You can go. I'll send you. But Nehemiah gets this yes, and then he gets bolder. And he goes, all right, I'm going to go take a step further. And he says in verse 7, he says, Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king to let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that's the Euphrates River, that they must permit me to pass through it till I come to Judea. That's, he's asking for safety. And then in verse 8, it says, And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give, uh, that he must give me timber to make the beams of the gates and of the citadel, which pertains to the temple. For the, the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So he asks for safety. He asks to be sent. Now he also asks for supplies. He goes, can you provide me supplies? And guess what? He's provided all the supplies he has needed. This is something that Chuck Smith used to say and it's something that we ought to know and memorize. Where God guides, God provides. Where God guides, God provides. You know what that means? If God is leading you in this direction, he's going to provide the resources, the power, the safety, the protection, everything that you need. He trusts in his provision. Trust that he will provide. And that's something I realized back at the, this young men's conference when I went to go guest teach it was called Be Brave. And one of the workshops, and it was for junior high, was on the providence of God. And the Lord used that to speak to my heart and says, Josh, you're not trusting that I will provide. 
You're not trusting that I'm going to provide you the answers. You're not going to trust me to provide the solutions to these problems and the steps to the solution. He wants to provide you the small little steps to the bigger solution. It's not just a pill that you get to take and all your problems are solved. He wants to provide it. If you have your own Bible, underline the last phrase in verse 8 where it says, according to the good hand of my God upon me. This phrase points to God orchestrating and blessing him. It's repeated in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, and several times in the book of Ezra, talking about the good hand of God. When you place some, you're like a hand on somebody, God has placed his hand upon Nehemiah and blessings are flowing and following him. He's giving glory to God in this aspect that he's providing. In verse 9, then I went to the governor, the governors in the region, excuse me, beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent captives of our, our captains of the army and horsemen with me. That, that's protection in a private entourage, basically. In verse 10, when Samballot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Amorite official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. When God opens a door and wants to move, there's always going to be opposition. With opportunity, there's opposition. And we are introduced to the opposition in this book, Sanballat and Tobiah. These two men are going to oppose Nehemiah. They're going to make fun of Nehemiah. They're going to try to discourage him in the midst of the work. And we all have a Sanballat and Tobiah in our lives. Someone that's trying to whisper into us, like, you, you should just give up on Christianity. You should give up on trying to follow the Lord and pursuing him. But I want you to notice, Nehemiah actually planned for the opposition. He expected it. He says, I know there's enemies out there. They do not like God. They do not like God's people. And he asked for letters from the king. That's what the letters are for. Because Samballat and Tobiah we're not friends. And he asks for letters to hand them because he's saying, basically, I'm on the king's authority and we're going to rebuild this wall. He prepared for that. So my question to us is, are you planning for the attacks of the enemy? I mentioned when you go home tonight, tomorrow morning when you wake up, are you preparing and expecting the enemy is going to attack you? and say, you know what, I'm going to do this, this, and this to prevent those attacks. Maybe you're going to be attacked with one of these things, where all of a sudden you're scrolling on your feed and you see someone's life that you compare yourself to and you're jealous of them. What are you going to do in that moment? Are you preparing for that attack? Are you preparing to handle that? What about when you question your identity? and you start giving into the world's agenda and their philosophy and what they think? What about the anxiety or the fear? Are you realizing that God is going to provide his peace to help you, to 
keep you calm in that moment. You have to plan for the opposition. And what are you going to do in that moment? We're going to see more of these two, Tobiah and Samballot, later on in this book. But I want to encourage you. How does the Lord want you to prepare for this week, for tomorrow morning? Because if you, if we, if we don't prepare and expect the opposition, if we don't pray, wait, and plan, then we are opening ourselves up to the attacks of the enemy. God wants to provide solutions to these problems more than you want the solution. The sin that you're struggling with, God wants to deliver you from that. Because in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, he says, he was manifested, that means made visible, to take away our sins. I love it in Isaiah, he talks about that he's going to wipe out our transgression. That word wipe out literally means to obliterate, to destroy, to demolish, to annihilate our sin. God wants to destroy it and crush it under his foot through his grace, through his truth. But it requires praying, planning, and waiting on the Lord and being confident during that time. A.W. Tozer goes on to say, not only are battles lost before they are fought, battles are also won before they are fought. There's battles that you're going to fight this upcoming week, this upcoming year. The Lord wants to equip you and strengthen the inner man or the inner woman to prepare you on how to fight those battles. And he's getting you ready on Sunday mornings. He's getting ready on Wednesday nights. Anytime you open up your word, he's preparing you. Are you exercising those muscles, those spiritual tools, those things that God has given you? And are you using those things? The Bible says, godly, or sorry, exercise profits very little, but godliness profits a lot. Prayer is like a spiritual muscle. How many of you guys hate doing push-ups? I hate doing push-ups. Like, my upper body is terrible, okay? Like, I'd rather do a leg workout any other day. But push-ups I do not like. But the more you do push-ups, the easier it'll become, correct? Because you're ripping that muscle apart, you're stretching it, and you're using it. The more we actually pray, the easier it'll be. You've heard that term, practice makes perfect, right? That's not true. Practice makes permanent. And if you're practicing the wrong way, that's going to be permanent in your life. But if you're practicing prayer, that's going to be a permanent part of your life. And if you're practicing on planning, that's going to be a permanent part of your life as well. And if you're practicing on waiting on the Lord, those, these qualities are what actually helped Nehemiah and built Nehemiah into the man that God wanted to use and the Lord wants to use every single one of you. So don't let your abilities disqualify you or your lack of ability disqualify you. God calls, and those he calls, he equips. And so put your faith in him that he's going to provide and that he has a way through these solutions.